Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Garrett Kaiser about his book, Getting Schooled, The Re-Education of an American Teacher. And Garrett, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, Garrett, I was wondering if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm a freelance writer, and I live in northeastern Vermont. Uh, Getting Schooled is my eighth book. Um, I taught uh, high school for about 15 years and then took a hiatus of about 14 and then returned for one year, and that's the subject of the book. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I've been married for 40 years. I have one adult daughter. And my wife and my daughter uh, both work in public school systems. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about how you came to write this particular book, Getting Schooled? Sure. Um, That year that I went back, the 2010-2011 year after a 14-year hiatus from teaching, was to say the least um, a pretty intense year for me. Um, and it's been my habit whenever going through uh, especially intense or interesting uh, periods in my life to keep a journal. Uh, I kept a journal the first time I went to England, and I kept a journal um, throughout my wife's pregnancy, and I've kept a journal at other times, and I kept a journal um, during this time. Um, And because the job that I was doing was teaching, I often had to catch up on keeping the journal because um, I was spending most of my time on preparation and correction. But then when I could manage it, I would would note some of what I did so I could go back and reflect on it. Um, When the year ended, um, I looked through the journal and I decided to write an essay, which appeared in Harper's Magazine. Uh, in the September 2011 issue, and it, too, was called Getting Schooled, um, the Re-Education of an American Teacher. And um, then that essay um, we pitched um, for a book, and uh, there was some interest in that project, and I was able to sign a contract and write a book. I'm sometimes asked... You know, did you go back to teaching with the intention of writing a book? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. Uh, I went back to teaching with the intention, as I explain in the book, of helping my wife transition to a better job uh, without our household losing its health insurance. Um, and uh, I tried actually some other things um, besides going back to a high school classroom, the same high school, by the way, that I taught in, in the first stint. And um, this is where I, where I wound up. Um, 
I think if someone works as a writer, then you're looking at nearly every experience as something that might find its way into a book. But I certainly didn't enter the classroom with the intention of writing a book. And in fact, I had another book under contract at the time, um, which was eventually published in 2012. It's my book, Privacy. And one of the first things I did after signing the teaching contract was to contact my editor for that book and say, uh, you're going to have to either find me some money and health insurance or you're going to have to let me take longer to finish this book because I know enough about teaching to know that once I enter that classroom, I'm going to have virtually no time to write. And that indeed proved true. Um, but my editor was understanding and uh, granted me the extension on my deadline. So I didn't need a book to write. I had a book to write, but I needed other things, um, and I set about teaching, and that led to the writing of yet another book. Well, as I was reading your memoir, um, I was actually reading it aloud with my partner, who was a teacher and is now a principal, and the two of us couldn't believe how much you captured in our own experiences and the emotions we've, we've had working in public schools. And this has me wondering what aspects of teaching we can generalize across time and place. For example, um, what kinds of people choose to become teachers? Well, first I'll say that I'm, I'm glad you and your partner uh, found material in the book that resonated, which, you know, for this book amounts to uh, the best kind of review one could get because you know the territory and your antenna are going to be higher than most in terms of finding what rings false or true. Um, I'm not sure that my own experience, having only taught in one school and not for my entire uh, adulthood, is sufficient to give a good answer to the question of what kinds of people become teachers. I know that the profession um, is very diverse and that it contains uh, a number of people with very different backgrounds, very different skills, uh, very different motivations. Uh, your question makes me think of something a good friend of mine once said that I've never forgotten. Um, he's the husband of a teacher, and he taught a little himself. And he said once to me, nobody, not even a farmer, works harder than a hard-working teacher. And there is nothing on this earth lazier than a lazy teacher. And um, it rang a bell because that certainly had been what I observed. Many teachers, I think, are the first in their families to go to college. Uh, some are the children of teachers. Um, the best of them, I think, are motivated by a passion to uh, impart something that they care about, um, to work with young people for whom they feel some kind of affinity. And sometimes by a hope that things can be better for others than they were for them, either um, educationally or sociologically or whatever, uh, if you sort of isolate the people that you think are the best teachers you've ever known, at least some of them were people who struggled as students themselves, either because they found learning hard or because other things were going on in their lives that made it hard, and they have this compelling desire to make things easier 
um, for another generation, or at least for some members of that generation than they were for themselves. The worst people are in, in the profession are probably um, people who just didn't know what else to do, um, who chose teaching by default. Um, you know, I look at my own college experience, and um, let's say that the people on the teacher preparation track were not always the most dedicated or studious people on campus. Uh, many of them were people who liked to party, um, that you didn't run into them in the library, and um, they took their um, their required complement of education courses, got their certificate, and away they went. Uh, fortunately for all of us, um, that, that's not typical of the entire profession. But it is typical of some, and it's not so much, I think, the fault of these people as a system that was created uh, to fought, to be, uh, in other words, at some point in our history, the country, um, you know, developed a, a college system in order to be a kind of factory farm, uh, just like those that give us cheap chicken and cheap pork to give us... Um, cheap teachers and a mob of them um, to see that there were always those um, those people to, to fill the slots. Um, it's interesting sometimes I've, you know, in connection with my writing, I've visited some major schools and universities, and I'm always curious about, you know, where the education department is housed, if it even has one. And you can hear deans and professors talk about how important education is and how they wish their students were better educated, uh, and yet the college doesn't even have an education department, or if it has one, it's housed in a basement somewhere, mm -hmm. um, even as people are talking about how, you know, how, vitally, uh, uh, how vital education is to the nation and how very, very much they care about it. Um. What about for those who uh, have never been teachers themselves, that they really only know their own professional work? Is there a difference in the way teachers uh, receive their professional development, work independently or collaboratively, the uh, feelings that they experience going and doing their work, whether it's their hopes or their anxieties? Um, do you think there's something unique about teaching that others should know? Well, again, I just want to underscore my remarks for, for uh, listeners who don't know me or my work um, by, the, uh, by the disclaimer that I've taught in one school and have not taught for my whole life. So the value of my answer to this question um, is tentative, to say the least. I think one big difference between teaching and other professions and there are many similarities, but one big difference is that teachers are working with minors. They're working with human beings, first of all. Um, the product, if you want to use that term, I don't particularly like it in this context, but if one insists on it, the product is a human being. It's not a, um, a cell phone or a tractor. Mm -hmm. And not only um, is one working with human beings, but with human beings who are not fully formed, who are minors, and so one is in a quasi-parental role. One's going to work outside the home, one's packing a lunch, but one is engaging other human beings um, in a way that's similar to that of a parent 
and and that creates a set of um, unique challenges, unique delights, um, and certainly unique responsibilities. I think the similarities, and it's one reason I think my book is of interest and of value to people who are not teachers, is that teachers are you know part of the same cultural and economic milieu as other workers, and so things, uh, trends, movements, misgivings. Um, that that enter other workplaces, enter schools as well, and they affect teachers as well, which is why, you know, teachers um, face things like layoffs, and teachers have things like unions, just as other workers do. I think one thing, one, one, one observation that might be of interest is that I think um, teachers were a precursor of a contemporary phenomenon, and that is the workday that never ends, which is becoming increasingly the case for many workers uh, driven by technology and just driven by the, um, the, 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 the business climate, uh, the corporate um, control that's, um, that's in place right now. But teachers are often, you know, working... Um, it almost can seem around the clock sometimes. I always remember my father telling me, when you when you when you get a profession, get a job where you know what your hours are, where you go in at a certain time and come home at a certain time. And of course, um, that wasn't true for him, which is why he gave the advice, and I didn't listen to him which is why I became a teacher. But I think that phenomenon of the workday that bleeds into the rest of one's life has become the case for many, certainly white-collar workers uh, in the nation at present. Um, you reference the history, culture, and poverty of northeastern Vermont. Uh, this is where you were teaching throughout the book. Um, what makes Lake Region High School and other rural New England high schools may be different uh, than those in other parts of the country? Well, I think, again, I've only been in that school, so I can't answer with great authority. I think every school is unique in the sense that there is a particular combination of factors that went into making that school and its community and then inform it. And, you know, to take Lake Region, the school that I taught at, as an example, there are, there are factors that make that place distinctive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the place around the school and the school itself. And one is um, the agrarian environment, which has taken a big hit in the past decades, but is still present. I mean, at one time, there were more cows in Orleans County, which is where Lake Region is in Vermont, than there were people. I don't think that's the case anymore, but the farm, um, the agricultural dimension is still there as an influence, as a context. Uh, Francophone culture, um, we are close to the border of Quebec, uh, many of the people in the area have French surnames. There are people who are bilingual. There are kids who come to school bilingual. In the in the in the recent past, I, I haven't heard of this lately, but there were kids who came to school even unable to speak uh, English. Uh, there was a lot a big influx of counterculture people at the end of the '60s, the beginning of the '70s, who founded communes and things like that in the area. That 
that also continues to be an influence. Uh, the closest to the closeness to the Canadian border um, has uh, has uh, helped to foster, uh, at least in the past, a kind of culture of outlawry uh, during Prohibition. Whiskey was struggled back and forth across the border. Um, there's less of that now, but I think it's it's part of the mix. Um, the fact that the towns are small, uh, that the school itself is small, around 400 people, um, all go into defining the character of the place. Um, and one of the factors at Lake Region, I'm not sure how to account for it, but I found it interesting, is the number of people who were students there who come back to work there, mm. who come back to teach there. In fact, my principal at the school was one of my students the year I went back and write about in No Place But Here. And there were other former students of mine who were now uh, teachers there. Um, all of that needs to be put against the background that many regional differences um, are increasingly being erased um, through mass culture and media. Um, it wouldn't take me long to get to the nearest McDonald's, even though as I'm talking to you, I'm looking out the window of my office at a dirt road that I've seen crisscrossed by moose and bear. But if I want a Big Mac, I, I don't, I can find one very, very quickly and, you know, I can go on my computer and, um, and, and do all kinds of social networking things if I wanted to do them, um, which I don't. Um, and so, you know, the thing that separates a student in northeastern Vermont from a student in the Bronx or a student elsewhere, mm -hmm. there are certainly unique cultural, economic factors, factors of race, factors of um, parent employment, et cetera. But in many ways, these kids are growing up in the same culture. Um. Your book talks a lot about the challenges, obviously, that the teachers face. Um, a few big ones that stuck out to me were um, the poverty that many students experienced, um, insufficient social services, um, parents who uh, their work schedules didn't allow them to be involved in their children's education, or in some cases it would appear that they just really weren't interested themselves. And so I'm wondering, under these kinds of circumstances, uh, it must be very difficult to teach and so what can teachers reasonably hope to accomplish with their students? Well, you have to have hope to teach. And, you know, at times the hope might seem desperate. But if you're not capable of maintaining desperate hope, you should probably do something else. I think that teachers can reasonably hope even in the worst circumstances. And I haven't taught in the worst circumstances, so it's not my place to presume to tell teachers who are in virtual war zones what they should hope or what they can accomplish. But I do think a teacher can reasonably hope that his or her students will um, have more skills and more options for the future and a sense of those options. Um, than they might have at present. I think that a teacher can reasonably hope that they may be able to impart some sense of personal worth or that they mm -hmm. might enhance the sense of personal worth that um, 
that students have. You know, kids come into the classroom um, feeling often that they're not worth much. Um, and their society sometimes fosters that sense of worthlessness. Um, as I say in my book, there was one point where I found myself saying to my students, I think more than one point, that for students of their, people of their age, re region, and class, um, society expected little of them except to be mindless consumers and cannon fodder in times of war. Uh, one can reasonably hope to help young people see themselves as more than that. I think um, a teacher can have a reasonable hope of giving students some pleasant memories of working mm. with their minds and in community with other people working with their minds. I mean, I think there are some experiences that we provide for students in the classroom that um, may not make too big an impression or seem to make too big an impression on them at present, and yet um, I think some of them look back and say, why did I take such pleasure doing this or that? And the reason was that they were working with their minds and in community um, with other people using their minds. You know, and then finally, I think teachers um, can hope reasonably to bear witness to some of the challenges that their students are facing. Hmm. You know, society talks a good line about the importance of schools, but um, from where I sit, and especially when I'm in a cynical mood, what it basically wants the schools to do is keep the kids off the street and out of the workforce and, and out of the way. Um, and, um, and once the kids are there, as long as they're not setting anything on fire, we can conveniently forget about them unless we're trying to, of course, market some gigo or gadget to them. Um, I think teachers can take the lid off that. Uh, I think teachers can say, ouch, when things hurt. And I think teachers can say things um, that people need to hear. Everybody's got a sense of what's going on in school, even though they haven't set foot in one since they were 18. I think teachers can bear witness. Um, you know, I think teachers sometimes feel frustration when they say, well, you know, I really feel I should do more politically. I should be more politicized to change society. But how the heck can I do that when I'm working 24-7 on my teaching? It's a good question. Uh, I don't, I don't think teachers uh, necessarily have time uh, to do all of the political work that people who see what they see might want to do or be able to do. But one thing they certainly can do is, is to bear witness. They can do it in letters to the editor. They can do mm -hmm. it in the produce aisle of the supermarket. They can do it in op-eds. Um, they can do it um, certainly when they vote. Uh, to bear witness to what some of their kids are up against, and some of their kids are up against uh, terrible um, obstacles, or to use Jonathan Kozol's phrase, savage inequalities. In your introduction, um, you discuss tensions between your personal life and your professional life. So uh, you describe teaching as being a noble profession, but ultimately you pursue a career in writing. At the same time, you, you, you describe public education as um, an important institution for our democracy, but you end up deciding to uh, homeschool your daughter for part of her elementary education. I was wondering, 
How did you weigh uh, doing what may seem like the right thing in one context as a teacher or as a citizen with the demands that it imposed on you and your family? How do you make decisions in, in those in that intersection? Well, you know, I think it was Carl Jung who said the big questions in life we never answer. We just struggle with them at progressively higher levels. And I think all people with any kind of conscience or intelligence are struggling with competing demands. Uh, every working parent does. Uh, every every citizen does. Um, every every. Everybody is is having that struggle. In my particular case, I've always believed that public education is important to democracy. Uh, certainly, my um, switch to a full time writing career I didn't see as any betrayal of that. Um, I think that um, senators are important to democracy, but I have no intention of running to be one. And um, I uh, I taught, but it was never the thing I wanted to do most. Mm-hmm. Um, I never made any bones about that. Uh, while I was doing it, I gave it my all. It seemed unconscionable to do otherwise, but I was glad to um, to make the change when I could, and I never regret it, even though I also never regret the years I taught. They have blessed me in uh, unforeseen ways, um, in unforeseen ways. I mean, before this day is done, I probably will have had contact with at least two former students, but I haven't seen in my classroom for 20, 25 years, but, um, but they're still part of, part of my life. As far as the homeschooling goes, um, you know, I can almost explain that. I, I homeschooled my daughter for a couple of years in terms in, in my belief in public education with a little parable, you know. I mean, let's say you had an aunt, okay? Let's say you had an aunt and, and your aunt took you aside even when you were a small boy and said, you know, Trevor, one of the most beautiful things in this life is marriage, is the commitment of a man and a woman to each other. And I hope that uh, you will have that blessing in your life, and I hope that um, you will be good to the person you partner with and be faithful to that person for the rest of your life. And then, you know, your aunt gets a divorce um, in order to avoid an abusive relationship. Is she a hypocrite? Mm-hmm. I would not say so. Uh, I would say that um, she has something she believes in, but in the particular workings out of her life, um, there was that was the choice she needed to make, and my wife and I reached a point where, for various reasons, we felt it was in our daughter's best interest to homeschool her. And no parent, in my view, is obliged uh, Abraham and Isaac style to make his or her child a burnt offering mm-hmm. uh, for his or her political convictions. Uh, in my daughter's case, uh, I homeschooled her with the goal of her returning to public school. Uh, we worked with the public school on her program, and in fact, she attended certain classes in the public school. And I continued to support the public school politically as a citizen by speaking up on behalf of its budgets and voting for its budgets, which I continue to do, even though my daughter no longer lives here and is, in fact, 31 years old. Um, other people in my community have kids in school, and so I've refused to adopt the 
um, costume of the retiree on a fixed income was just going to go to the poorhouse if the school budget passes. And so now that my kids are safely educated, I can go in there and say we need to vote down the budget. So I remain committed to uh, public school, um, but uh, by the same by the same token, my daughter's needs were not being met in the public school at that time, in part because of budgetary cuts and restraints. And um, I looked at what I was doing for other people's children um, and what uh, was happening to my own child, and that, um, that was unacceptable to me. I needed to make a, a move. And, I'm glad I did. The, the, the years I homeschooled my daughter um, were two of the best years of my life. The book uh, addresses changes made in education and kind of how they affected you having been out of the classroom for almost 15 years. Suddenly, um, it seems like you were struck by new technology, a new emphasis on standardized testing. I was wondering if you could talk about these changes and how you saw them affect various stakeholders in public education. So, of course, there was you and your teaching colleagues. There were the administrators at the school, your students, their parents. You've, I'm, I'm sure you've observed the policy debate uh, locally and nationally. And then, of course, there's big business in creating tests and textbooks and um, educational goods and services. Um, how did all of those things change in their, in their own way during that time? All right. Well, um, you know, I, I think the questions you've asked me thus far, I've tried to answer with a certain seemly humility and concreteness. So now I'm going to change course and, sure. and stab at a big picture, stab at the big picture, um, and perhaps um, um, say some unwise things as a result. But let's <laughs> give it a, a let's give it a stab. I'm not a historian of, of education, but it seems to me, um, as far as I know, that in the, in the past, changes in education in this country came about first because of the change in the common understanding of what schools were for. Hmm. In other words, in an agrarian society, you weren't sending kids to school to prepare them for jobs. They knew what the jobs were. They knew it from working beside their fathers and mothers in the barn and in the kitchen. Um, but you were preparing them to be citizens. You were preparing them to um, be able to hold some common discourse, some business interactions. They could cipher. They could they could read whatever. Um, that changed, I think, largely to an emphasis on preparing kids not so much for the public square as for the, the world of work. And then other changes occurred based on changes in the world of work and the kinds of um, skill sets that people needed to be gainfully employed. I believe perhaps... Um, at the risk of putting myself among alarmists and conspiracy theorists, that we are now in the midst of a major change which has to do not with a change in what education is for, not with a change in the workplace, but with a change in our definition of the human being itself. 
Um, I think we are in the midst of a cultural shift in which um, anthropology and psychology are on the verge of becoming branches of robotics. I think our sense of um, what is human, what it means to be a fully functioning human being, has become very reductive. It has become uh, data-driven. Um, it has become mechanistic. Um, let's find out what brain science can tell us about the Paris Commune of 1848. So certainly there was some kind of little neurological shuffle there that led to that revolution. And, um, and so education is increasingly driven by um, data and by standardized testing. Uh, which tends to, um, you know, and, and to say all the stuff is bad and it's all, you know, the boogeyman is, of course, nonsense. Uh, there's some reason to want um, some common understandings among um, teachers and, and some common social understanding of what needs to be taught. There's certainly a need to see that the profession is accountable. But I think that um, in some ways... If you look at what we're emphasizing in terms of technology and in terms of data gathering and in terms of testing and what kind of human being we are trying to produce, I mean, it raises, it raises some questions that I think we, we should be concerned with. Are we trying to, to, um, to equip the next generation's Martin Luther King, the next generation's Elizabeth Cady Stanton, or are we trying to create the next generation's uh, Mark Zuckerberg? Mm-hmm. What is what is our goal? And even if it's the latter, it's kind of amusing, since even the giants of the digital revolution were prepared by an educational system that we now disparage in the name of the digital revolution. In other words, we, we, we're different people now. We don't need all that stuff like literature and social studies, which seem to have dropped out of the common core. We don't need that stuff. Um, we just need people like Jobs and Gates and Zuckerberg. Well, where did they come from? Um, they certainly didn't come from uh, um, an educational system that asked them to do nothing more than take tests on computers. So, um, yes, changes in technology, um, and, and, and lest I, I be too um, simplistic here, you know, there have been changes in, in, in focusing on technology that have been very positive in the classroom, um, that have been very liberating for certain students who in the past would have been marginalized because of certain learning issues, just even something as simple as fine motor control, being able to hold a pencil and write legible words. These kids have now been set free uh, by word processing, by, you know, the use of computers, little libraries that, you know, couldn't afford books now maybe um, have a wider range of resources because of the internet. So, you know, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. But um, these changes, I think, um, are, are, are 
of concern, not so much because of the way they're changing schools as as because of the way they're they're based on changes and how we're looking at what does it mean to be human. Wendell Berry has a book on that's titled "What Are People For?" Um, I think a question worth asking. In in your description of uh, the changes as in technology as you see it, it seems like uh, administrators, policymakers, um, those who are uh, profiting in some ways from schools are all kind of coming to similar conclusions. Um, would you say that, that students and parents are kind of on board with this shift as well? Or are they, um, rather than advocating for this kind of change, are they being changed by uh, the people that control the system? Well, I think the answer is complicated. Um, you know, healthy parents... Parents with their heads screwed on straight, they want the best for their kids. Mm-hmm. And they are ready to recognize that they may not know what is best for their kids. They look to experts. They look to others to tell them. Um, and so in some ways, yeah, they go on for the ride, although I think parents and students, too, are raising questions um, about the direction of education, about the mandates that are handed down from on high. And, you know, if our democracy is healthy, that kind of tension and conflict uh, among all the stakeholders is a good thing, and we can hope it will move us to a better place, that all these moves or counter-moves uh, and, and counter-moves Will will you know put us on provisionally a, a, a saner foundation as far as what we do with our young, and so that's exciting. Um, but it's a bit daunting to me to look at um, you know say the Common Core movement and realize that one of the movers and shakers are, are you know the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, I'm not sure. I was must have been asleep during the public forum in which the people of the United States um, decided that um, the people best able to determine what their children needed um, were the CEOs of, of digital firms. Um, so... I don't know. That's somewhat of a mess of an answer. I guess, um, I guess, you know, parents and students, I think, are certainly not marching in lockstep, uh, with everything they're told by, um, corporate America and the politicians who serve corporate America. But by the same token, um, we're all susceptible to influence. Um, and as a species, we're quite susceptible to addiction. And I think that there are certain addictions that come through the marketplace and find their way in the curriculum as well. In, in the book, uh, you describe yourself as being politically liberal, uh, a supporter of, of working people, social welfare programs, a skeptic of recent military interventions overseas. I was wondering, um, in what ways have your experiences in, in schools informed your p- political ideology, if at all? 
Well, I think they've informed it in in two ways. Um, And in some ways, in in two what might seem oppositional ways. Um, First of all, teaching has radicalized my politics. Um, I I haven't described myself as a liberal for a while, even though um, I understand what you're saying, and it's it's roughly accurate. Um, Teaching has underscored for me the the inequalities that exist, even in a, a little community. Um, it's underscored for me how, um, as one person put it, um, one civil rights activist put it year, years ago, uh, we're giving our kids a head start. We speak of head start. We're giving our kids a head start on hitting the brick wall that awaits them uh, when they become adults in a society that's still class-based, um, that's still um, uh, rife with systemic racism, et cetera. And so, um, Based on what I've seen, based on the experiences of my students, um, teaching has, has radicalized um, my politics um, in, in using politics in the broadest sense. I mean, it was as a teacher that I think I encountered, you know, for the first, the first time that I encountered a transgendered person was as a teacher. Uh, the first time that I think, uh, you know, I've probably been running into gay and lesbian people all my life without knowing it um, in the closeted earlier times in which I lived, but it was in the classroom that I think I became aware, uh, more aware than I was of sexual minorities. And um, so um, teaching has um, made me more aware of the demands um, of different uh, marginalized and oppressed groups. And it certainly radicalized my politics in regard to um, to inequality and in regard to what would be required to make the United States um, uh, a democracy in every way. Um, at the same time, and here's where the the paradox comes teacher teaching has sobered me um, about the likelihood of achieving certain political objectives uh, quickly. Um, It's made me understand how hard it is to change certain ingrained habits and ways of thinking. Um, I was thinking the other day of a man uh, named Andre Trockme. He was a Huguenot minister um, in a little town called Le Chambon in um, in France during World War II. He's the subject of a fascinating book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. And Trockme and, and his fellow villagers and parishioners managed to rescue something like 5,000 Jews, many of them children, from, um, from falling into the hands of the Nazis. It's a heroic individual, an inspiring story. And um, Trachme, early in his resistance, was taken in to be questioned by a Vichy policeman. And Trachme was a minister, okay? He was a, a man of theology, a man of religious faith. And he, he came out of that experience of being questioned by the 
by the policeman. And he said in his journal, and of course I'm giving just a rough paraphrase of what he said. He said, prior to that experience, I had thought that there were two big forces at work in the world. And the two big forces were good and evil. No surprise there, right? That's what we would expect the minister to say. He said, after that interrogation, I realized there was a third force almost as potent as those two, and it was stupidity. And to stupidity, I would add two others. (laughs) You know, just as physicists are discovering different forces in the universe, you know, good, evil, stupidity, don't forget laziness. And don't forget addiction. Um, those are powerful, powerful forces. Um, and um, they put a drag on some of our best intentions. And so um, teaching has given me um, a, more, a more radical political perspective. At the same time, it's, um, it's argued for a certain patience. Um, a certain appreciation of tragedy in human affairs. And um, you put that together, and I guess that's what we're teaching has left me. Could you also comment on uh, the operations of local school boards? Um, So for people who aren't parents themselves or haven't interacted with school boards, um, what is it that they should know about how these bodies typically operate? What kinds of, how do they approach problems in, in your experience as a parent and as a teacher? Well, goodness. Um, you know, again, I know about school boards only um, in a couple localities. I know about the school board where I, where I taught and I know about the school board um, in the, in the town where I live. Um, so my experiences are limited. Um, School boards are seen as necessary to the local control of schools, and I think at their best they function as a a, a good a good block in the democratic uh, structure. Um, unfortunately, um, there are some problems with the operation of many school boards. One of them is that school board members sometimes run because they have particular access to grind mm-hmm. uh, in regard to their own children who are into school, in regard to very narrow concerns, many of them budgetary. Uh, and they often operate in what amounts to a vacuum. In other words, the community elects them to office and then leaves them, abandons them, uh, much as children are dropped off at school and, and forgotten for the day. So the school board functions with very little public uh, guidance or input unless a person has a particular beef with a particular teacher, with a particular uh, menu in the cafeteria, with a particular this or a particular that. The school board is trying to find its way. And I've known school board members personally, people I, I have a high regard for, who are quite frustrated by their isolation, by not even knowing for sure what it is the public wants, and by trying to... Um, you know, as generalists, as people who are not educational specialists, trying to guide the workings of their local school, and um, and then when town meeting comes, um, which is something we have here in Vermont, you know, people get up and take them to task. 
the best school board members um, know teachers. They know the school. They go into the school. Um, they have some idea of, of what's being taught in the school. One is sometimes amazed, and in my case, aghast, at the amount of ignorance that there is um, in some school board members about the school they govern. And I think this is true not just of school boards, but of public education as a whole. Education is one of those subjects about which people seem to feel that they are entitled to their opinions, and of course, technically, they are entitled to their opinions, but that their opinions have validity even when they're based on no concrete research, no exploration of the thing that they have their opinions about. Um, and this scene, everybody knows what's going on in the school. They can tell you. You know, you meet them in the supermarket, but then you ask them, have you been in the school? Have you, when was the last time you walked into the school? And unless they're a parent with a kid in the school, and sometimes even in that case, they haven't been inside the school, which I find quite amazing. You, you'll get a big argument from me. I'm a big person to argue with people who say, you know, what we need to do is run schools after a business model. You know, the so-called business model, whatever that means, should govern every aspect of human activity. Well, I, um, my back gets right up with that. But there is one thing that I would say about business that would be um, well applied to schools, and that is a business person usually wants to know what the heck is going on in the business they run, and they find that out by walking through the place of business. When I was a young man, I, I earned some of my money going through college and stuff by working in factories. These were the days when America still had some kind of industrial base. And I worked in these, these factories. And, um, you know, the suits would come back and walk the factory floor because they wanted to know what was being made. They wanted to, you know, they'd watch me work on the machine. They wanted to know how the machine worked. Uh, people from other companies would come um, People, investors would want to know what they were investing in. And yet, um, in some communities, you know, the school is the biggest item. Education is the biggest item on the budget. And yet, people make decisions about that and never walk in the school, never sit in a class, never, you know, go see a principal and say, you know, I'm taking a day, half day off from work. I want to go and I want to sit in on first, second grade because I want to know what's going on in first, second grade. I want to meet some first graders. We would have much better schools, much better school boards, and a happier nation in general if more people just got themselves into schools to see what was going on there. And the schools, of course... Uh, have some responsibility in making people feel welcome there. I think there are schools that would just just as soon make sure that nobody in the community walked through the doors. But I don't think that's good for the community, and I don't think it's good for the school. Um, teachers at uh, the particular school where you were at that particular time, um, they weren't allowed to give uh, students zeros for incomplete assignments, from what I understand. Instead, they were asked to complete them. Um, during their lunchtime outside of the principal's office. 
Um, similarly, you share an anecdote of a teacher who's made multiple copies of a homework assignment and then followed a student who's consistently forgot that homework in order to make sure that he stopped forgetting it. Um, when discussing these, these anecdotes and others, uh, you seem to characterize your own teaching philosophy as being somewhat at odds with these steps or some school rhetoric about doing whatever it takes for every student to succeed. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could elaborate on your teaching philosophy, how it's similar or different than your politics. Okay, goodness. That, that, that's really a, um, a combination of questions. And um, so I'm, I'm going to try to touch on, on, on all of them um, in some kind of order. Um, first of all, just, just to clarify, teachers were allowed to give zeros at Lake Region, but what the principal was trying to discourage, and I think he was right in doing that, is kind of a knee-jerk reaction in which um, the teacher felt that he'd fulfilled his responsibility or she'd fulfilled her responsibility simply by giving a zero for the missing assignment. The principal said, well, what about the material that wasn't mastered uh, without the completion of that assignment. And so the um, the principal urged teachers to follow up with the student um, and, um, and try to see that that assignment got in, although he did say that if the student continues to, you know, refuse to do the assignment, a zero might be in order. And that struck me as sound. And I, in fact, um, you know, did my best to follow um, that practice. Um, it did rub a little bit against my, not my politics so much as some general principles. I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, although all of us have odds between um, you know, our politics and aspects of our character. I've always been fond of a quote by Trotsky, the great Russian revolutionary, who said, I hate disorder and destruction of any kind. You know, that characteristically, I'm very conservative in my habits, and I like order, and I like structure, and, you know, he spent part of his life, you know, leading a civil war and blowing up railroads and all the, all the rest of it. So we all have those little tensions. I, I, I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, but I do believe very strongly in consent. Mm -hmm. um, and I get, I get, um, I get uncomfortable whenever schools um, bypass that question and say, well, you know, we're going to get these kids to learn. And some of this is driven, of course, by the standardized test, because now if the kid's refusing to learn a certain material, he's sinking the whole school in terms of the standardized test. Well, we certainly should bring some pressure to bear to see that students, um, they are minors, by the way. They're, they're not always acting in their best interests. We need to try to get them um, to, to see things in a better way. But I still hold that consent, there's something sacred about consent. Um, if I consider some of the most beautiful things that I can think of and some of the ugliest things, you know, from a helicopter, they would look the same. 
you know, the difference between work, which I consider one of the most beautiful things in the world, and slavery from a helicopter might look the same. Me puttering in my tomato garden and a slave working in a cotton field might look the same from a helicopter. Rape and lovemaking might look the same from a helicopter. Uh, someone singing for joy and someone forced to sing in a bar by a guy, by a bully, uh, might sound the same on a podcast, but they're very, very different phenomena, and what makes them different is that there is consent in the case of the beautiful things, and there's a lack of consent in the case of the uglier things. And so, um, and so, um, I, I did take some umbrage with the idea that, you know, we're not going to give students even the option of uh, failing, even when it seems that that's the option that um, they have chosen. Now, you asked me, um, Trevor, about my philosophy of teaching um, and also about, um, I think, about helping students um, and when one helps. Um, which should I look at first, you think? Why don't I just go to the question you asked me about what my philosophy of teaching was. That's maybe the easiest to get out of the way. Um, I, I, I'm fond of saying that I'm not sure I have a philosophy of teaching. Um, I have a work ethic. Um, and sometimes I think that phrase, educational philosophy, is used um, a bit absurdly. We take a, you know, a 27-year-old graduating from a state commuter college with a teaching degree and say, what's your, and he sits down for an interview with a principal, and the principal asks him, what's your philosophy of education? I mean, Montaigne had a philosophy of education. John Dewey had a philosophy of education. Most of us have five classes and 85 students. Um, that said, um, I guess I venture this far for a philosophy of education that um, I think teaching is what I would call incarnational. And by that I mean that as much as possible a teacher needs to embody what he or she teaches. Um, if you teach English, then um, your passion for reading, um, your passion for language, your belief in the importance of language is going to be reflected in everything you do and everything you say. And if you believe in courtesy and human dignity, then that's going to be embodied in the way that you teach your classes. Uh, there's a, 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 a writing platitude that you've probably heard, show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I don't always hold with that, but I think the pedagogical version is um, show, um, don't tell. Um, I'll stop there, and um, I'll stop there. Um, looking back on that year when you returned to teaching, which is now more than four years ago, um, have your thoughts and feelings changed at all? And is there anything, is there any change that could happen in schools that would allow you to seriously consider going back to teaching permanently? Um, I don't think my thoughts have changed looking back on the year. Um, 
you know, every so often I may think of something I wish I'd done better that hadn't occurred to me before, but my overall reflections, um, I think have changed and I'm, I've not changed rather. And I'm, I'm glad of that because many of them were positive, especially about, you know, the, the beauty and the promise that are in youth and, um, the real dedication I found among teachers that were there, um, which I continue to find inspiring. Um, I saw it as beautiful then. I see it as beautiful now. As far as if anything would have to change in school for me to go back to teaching per- permanently, I think the question would have to be ch- rephrased as what would need to change in me mm-hmm. because um, I'm doing the work I wanted to do even before I entered the classroom um, because I think that I'm at my best when I'm working alone and because um, I don't intend to go back to teaching either temporarily or permanently. Uh, I can tell you some things that might have made me stay longer while I was in it, um, which may be a roundabout way of addressing your question. Um, I think if I had had... um, more of an ability to have a life outside of school. Um, If teaching had left me more time for my family, if being an English teacher had left me with more time to read literature, Mm. how's that for irony? Um, I think that would have made me stay longer. And if, And if the teaching assignment was constructed on a scale that allowed me to feel greater effectiveness. I mean, when you're teaching classes that last 45 minutes um, with a class full of 20 kids, do the math. How many minutes attention are you giving to each kid? Um, And then you do a week of that. I think if the if if the school day and the school assignment had been structured in such a way that I felt I could make more of an impact than I was able to make um, that would have enabled me to stay. Um, as a footnote to that, that answer, I would just say that in some ways, certainly not in terms of employment, but in other ways, I am still teaching. Um, this afternoon, I'm going to have a dialogue with a young woman who is... Um, got a book she's ready to um, publish and uh, wants to talk a little bit about the manuscript and the process. And that is going to be a teaching procedure. Um, In two weeks, I'm going to be giving a lecture related to my writing, but on the music of John Coltrane, perhaps for some people who've never heard it. And that also is going to be an exercise in teaching. And I think in some of my writings, I am teaching. I'm certainly learning as I prepare um, to do that teaching. And so um, I like to think that in some way I I am teaching permanently. But as far as going back to the job of teaching permanently, um, we should never say never, I guess. But I I don't foresee that happening, um, even if all the changes I'd like to see in schools were to occur, uh, but I would rejoice that others uh, called to teach um, would be um, blessed by those changes, and the kids too. 
Uh, well, Garrett, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just wanted to ask you one more question. And that is, uh, what, what's your current project? What are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on, um, on several things, um, in, actually in a few different genres. Right at this immediate time, I'm working on a, an essay about um, disasters and about human solidarity in the face of those disasters. And there are, of course, other projects around me, but I think I'm going to, um, to, um, to, to stop at that. I, we all have our little superstitions and fears, and one of my fears is, is becoming a person who spends more time talking about his writing than he actually spends writing. So I tend to play the cards close to the chest when people ask me about current projects, even though I'm always gratified by the question, as I am by yours. Well, as someone who thoroughly enjoyed your book, I, I look forward to reading that piece when it's published. Um, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed um, being here, and, and thank you for your uh, full engagement with the book.